there's a reason that the Rams defensively have struggled so much with this 49ers offense. Welcome to Props and Hops, a betting and beer podcast powered by Dimers.com and part of Blue Wire Hustle. I'm your host, Matt Landis, and first things first, we've got a new theme song. Huge thanks to John Corey and Scott Milch from The Hambones. If you like what you heard, you can go ahead and like The Hambones on Facebook, as well as check out their website, thehambones.com. I'll play the full song at the end of the show, but to get things rolling, This is our conference championship breakdown, and we've got a special guest to get to this weekend's action, handicapper and content creator extraordinaire, Adam Chernoff. We dive into the AFC and NFC championship games, and also take an early look at Super Bowl 56 look-ahead lines, putting some best bets in the sights depending on the matchup we get for the big game. We also get into the betting content space, and of course we weave in the hops, with Adam speaking as well as anybody, to the key role the environment plays in any drinking experience. If you're listening to this, odds are you also know Adam's work with the Simple Handicap podcast and his new YouTube show Covers Daily. I'd also encourage you to check out episodes 54 and 55 of Props and Hops for more on Adam's general approach to betting as well as his fascinating background, including a formative decade on both sides of the counter in Central America. One housekeeping note before we cut to the conversation, if you want picks driven by analytics and thousands of simulations, check out the Cutting Edge Quick Picks section for free at dimers.com. You can find a link in the show notes to see where you want to get down on the Dimersbot's biggest edges. And now, enjoy this week's conversation with Adam Chernoff. Adam Chernoff, welcome back to Props and Hops. Round two or three? We did a two-parter, so I guess it depends on how you want to grade it. This might almost be like that Coldplay mashup first halftime song, What Are We Gonna Say? Um, I'll call it round two because it's my second time actually sitting down to do this with you, and hopefully round three, not too far away. Awesome. I'm in. I think since the last time we had you on this summer, you've had what I'd imagine is the best NFL betting season of your life. You've just been on such a roll, providing great content all season long. What's that experience been like for you? Believe it or not, I think it's it's going to be close, but I think it's second best financially overall. That's saying something. Yeah, there was um, my first year back in 2016 was huge too, but um, that was kind of aided by a future. So it kind of goes both ways, but no, it's been like, you can't complain. Uh, <laughs> I mean, when it goes that well, the entire year, um, last year felt a lot worse because I did as much media as I've ever done. And so even though it was, it was to the point, a break even year, less the VIG on 70 some losses, but it felt like I just lost everything. Um, this year, complete opposite in terms of how it was 
last year. Like I, I lost the first week last year and I never got back above even this year. I had a huge week one and it's never gone below what was one in week one. So it's just been straight up. So streaky, but that's kind of how it goes with football. We'll look to keep it going as we hit the conference championship round. And we can just dive into the AFC title game here. Cincinnati at Kansas City. Current line as we record this Thursday, just a tick before noon Pacific time for me. Chiefs laying seven. And we've seen some Kansas City money. Now it's a juicy seven. I'm seeing minus 115 is the consensus to lay the touchdown with the Chiefs. Total sitting at 54 and a half. What's your current outlook on this game? I hear the side is going to keep going up to probably seven and a half before kickoff and the total there's a lot of love for the over myself included but i don't know how much higher it might go just because when it comes to a playoff game we're kind of maxed out um with that said these totals in the playoffs that are this high they're there for a reason there's not many of them and they're almost always justified and i think this one is to an extent but i thought the total was a little bit short and i bet it at 53 and a half if it's going to go over, you're probably getting over 54 and a half too, uh, but obviously a less valuable number. This was the same price and is now the same price that we saw close against Buffalo. And so like my justification was the offense for Cincinnati is obviously a tick worse than Buffalo, but defensively it's significantly worse. And I don't think the issue here is, will Kansas City do their part of the total? I think it's a matter of will Cincinnati be able to move the football to do their part of the total. Um, and I, I think they absolutely can. So when I was looking at this number as the same price we saw a week ago, I just I couldn't justify that. So I was pretty happy to go over. But there's a lot of matchup interest within the game itself. You touched on the fact the number has gone up since you took an early lead at 53 and a half. It seems like it got from a soft opener of 50 and a half at some faraway places to 54 and a half in quite a hurry. But with 54 being a bit of a key number with totals, it sounds like you're still good with perhaps a reduced position over 54 and a half. How would you describe maybe your thought process on a potential price ceiling if we see this total continue to steam upward? It's still good now, for sure. Um, there's not a lot of data at these high ranges. Um, but I mean, even if you're going down towards like the 47 range, which is right where we saw an average total this year, you're never going to find a total in today's NFL that's carrying more of like, like two to 3% value as you go up. So it's not necessarily the same thing as sides where you can go from three to three and a half. And it's a completely different handicap in this sense, going from 53 and a half to 54 and a half. We're not, we're not losing a ton off of that movement. Obviously it's less valuable, but I would still be more than fine playing that. I think, team totals too if you're really concerned about the 54 and a half if you're finding a kc team total at better than 31 if you're more comfortable playing that you can certainly do that but i'm i'm fine playing either one and it would have to get to 56 for the full game before you're really losing a lot of value and then anything with the team total if you're getting above 31 to 31 and a half you're starting to lose value there but happy with the total and and playing this one over still yeah, I like that look at the team total, but I think people are onto it now, seeing a current consensus. 31 and a half juiced to the over quite heavily. So at that rate, if you see the total get up to 56 for the full game, perhaps that's the way to go. Anything better is, is fine, yeah. 
When it comes to the side, one of my primary considerations uh, looking the Chiefs way early on this week was the notion of variance in the game, potentially a pendulum swing back toward the middle for both teams. Cincinnati, second week in a row last week, going plus two in turnovers, plus three if we include failed fourth downs. And in the red zone, the Raiders were just one for five. The Titans usually great in the red zone, just one for three. So that's a 25% rate for opposing offenses, league average 60%. I feel like if turnovers and red zone luck regress for the Bengals, that could be a big factor in this one. Conversely for the Chiefs, Buffalo didn't miss on a fourth down or in the red zone last week. So things could move in a positive way for them. And I want to be wary of getting too into the nitty gritty with variance in a one game sample size. I mean, it's certainly possible. Bengals could win the turnover battle again. Bengals sure. could get some red zone fortune. But if anything, without saying that Cincinnati is definitely due for bad luck and the Chiefs are due for better luck, if things just regress toward the middle, overall, I feel like that works in Kansas City's favor relative to what we've seen lately. Does that logic check out in your mind? I think so. The Bengals all season have been kind of overachieving their box score on a weekly basis with a pretty high frequency. Like they've been no stranger to doing that. And you're you're right and then it's like always when does this catch up when does it go the other way it's it's tricky for me in this game because if the chiefs get ahead that defense can take such advantage of this Bengals offensive line which is just it's a huge issue we saw it against Tennessee we've seen it all season um if it goes the other way and the Bengals get an early lead that kind of buys them some time at least in terms of how the chiefs are going to have to defend but like the Chiefs in in comparison were like the first five or six weeks of the season, they were leading the league in turnovers. And so it's a team that's kind of been on the other side of that pendulum too. So I I certainly think there's logic to what you're saying. And there's no question if we get an average game from the Bengals and an average game from the Chiefs, then this number is arguably short and could be quite a bit bigger, in my opinion. Likewise, I rarely feel a lot of conviction on a game being a blowout. I just think there's so much we don't know or so much that we tend to think we know that we really don't when the game gets played between the lines. So a bit of a red flag in my mind if this seems almost too easy for the Chiefs with Burrow and Chase. I mean, we saw just a few weeks ago, Kansas City had a big lead and the Bengals came back on them. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like this one has a chance to get a little bit lopsided and to that end, if somebody missed the you know two-minute window of opportunity to lay six and a half with Kansas City or even a cheaper seven earlier in the week, any thought to alternative lines maybe laying a couple touchdowns or, or a touch more for a much more positive payout, knowing that that level of variance might be a part of this game? I, it's certainly in play, I think. And Burrow, for a lot of things that he does, gets a pass because of his personality in the media and after games. This is still a very young quarterback playing his third consecutive playoff road game that in the first two, we didn't see like a ton of like this dominating performance like it's being made out to be. He didn't throw a touchdown last week. Um, his first meet playoff game against the Raiders was average at best. And so it just, he always gets a pass with it because of how he is in media. And like every other young quarterback this postseason has just looked horrible when they go on the road. And he's got by largely in part to playing the two aside from Pittsburgh 
probably worst teams in the AFC, you can justify that we're able to make the playoffs. And that goes a long way down the ranking of NFC teams as well. And so that I think has to count for something. And for me, it's like, he's playing it off. Like the SEC is so loud and he doesn't care and it doesn't bother him. Well, it might maybe to an extent, but historically there's not a lot working in his favor when you're looking at quarterback making a road start in the playoffs for the first time he's made the, like it just, he's kind of defied that twice. And that's something that's very real for a detriment to performance. So it's like, if, if everything doesn't click for Cincinnati, it does feel like this game has an element of getting well out of reach for sure. One of the thoughts it doesn't answer. It doesn't. Answer. I copped out of the answer, but like, yes, the alternates probably in play. I think a lot of this too does come down to the thought process. So that's totally fine. I mean, if you just gave a quick yes or no, I think that would have been much less valuable than what you just outlined. And as I'm watching this game, one of the thoughts I'll have in mind something from the late, great David Malinsky. I know you and I both retweeted last week a video resurfacing about 10 great. years ago from the divisional round. Uh, he was doing a great breakdown with Teddy Covers. And Dave touched on the notion that in the playoffs, oftentimes when a favorite asserts its dominance and builds a big lead, there can be less likelihood of the underdog coming back if they know they're outmatched and they don't have to worry about going to watch film in a brutal week of practice with a pissed-off coach so Burrow doesn't seem like a guy who would let go of the rope to borrow a phrase that Dave would use this time of year, but it seems like things do have the potential to snowball a bit. And one thing when you mentioned Burrow, I mean, I will qualify this by saying I, I love what we've seen from him his first couple of years, his recovery from the ACL as a Chargers fan. I'm just so frustrated that there's such a high concentration of great young quarterbacks in the AFC. Cause I feel like my team finally has its guy and there's yep. three more years on his rookie deal yet. It almost looks insurmountable with all the other good quarterbacks and teams in the conference and Burrow's a part of that equation. So I want to give credit where it's due. That Imagine said, if Rogers gets added into that equation, please, please. No, I'm, I'm trying to keep him out of the West as much as I can. Uh, but yeah, it sounds like Rogers to Denver might get interesting with their head coaching hire, bringing over the Packers OC. So that might just be, you know, one more straw on the camel's back, so to speak. But circling back to your point about Burrow, nine sacks last week. A lot of that due to poor offensive line protection, for sure. The Titans' defensive front played a really good game. But we've learned over more recent years, sacks tend to be more of a quarterback stat. To your point, Burrow has a great personality that the media tends to eat up a lot of confidence. Seems like a really cool, calm, and collected type of guy. But is he also perhaps getting a bit of a pass for taking nine sacks, knowing that in general, sacks do tend to kill drives. And if we see anything close to that in Kansas City, it could be game over in a hurry. So your first point with like blowouts tend to get bad in the playoffs. So in the wild card round, it was the Bills where that game got completely out of control. Uh, the Chiefs game got completely out of control. The Rams game got out of control. And then last week, I mean that... We say what you will about the Rams, but that was an interesting sort of back and forth. We had a lot of tight games, but uh, that Rams game was really never as close as it was ultimately made out to be. But it's very true that you just don't get teams really taking the foot off the gas once they get a lead and an advantage in the playoffs. So that's certainly a real thing. As far as Burrow, like it, it is on him, but that offensive line during the regular season was – 31st in pass block win rate off the top of my head. Like it was bottom three. It's a terrible offensive line. They spent money everywhere else. 
And there was the big controversy in the draft where they went and elected not to sort of bolster their offensive line and went to skill position players, which now we're seeing the give and take of that. You get these big games from Chase and you get big games from the other guys, but you're sort of a sitting duck in the pocket if there's an opponent that can get pressure. And for KC, it's once they get up, that's when the pressure starts to come. So that's why I think that first 10 to 15 minutes of the game is going to be absolutely key. Bengals fall behind. They're cooked, I think. Yeah, and I would like to thank the Bengals once again for taking Jamar Chase because that left the door open for my Chargers to get Rashawn Slater. Just a revelation his rookie season. So I'll keep my fingers crossed uh, for my personal rooting interest moving forward, but at the same time keep things on track with the teams that are left fighting. Uh, And I think we've covered the AFC title game pretty well. I would also love to get your thoughts. I know both a side and total you've played in the second game on Sunday between the Niners and the Rams. Rams currently, now it looks like back to a cheap three and a half most places. Let's say minus three and a half, minus 105, total at 46. You tweeted early in the week, getting in play on San Francisco plus three and a half. I I know that's gone from a heavily juiced plus three and a half. It's going that way once again now. We've also seen some pretty firm resistance on the Rams, which has been interesting. So what's your take on the side as we have this conversation right now? We're we're stuck between three and four. There's really strong opinions that differ at both. There's a group that aggressively took the Rams at three. There's a group that aggressively took the Niners at three and a half and four back the other way. So knowing the difference of opinions on both of these teams, I think it's really difficult from a bookmaking perspective to find justification to move past one or the other. Um. I was happy to bet the Niners at more than the field goal. I thought I just I felt like this had to be under the three and you're getting the hook on the other side. So I took it. Um, This is I I don't know. It feels like much more of a tighter matchup than it's being made out to be. We saw the Niners struggle in Green Bay. But if you're ever going to give a team like a list of excuses and outs, I think it's probably that situation and circumstance. And a lot's being made of the Garoppolo injury. It was actually his entire shoulder injury, which was the more concerning one, was removed from the injury report on Wednesday. So, like, it was medically cleared to be fine. It was a grade one sprain, whatever you're going to – I'm not breaking down the the medical technicalities of that. But the fact is – Dr. Chernoff on the spot. Yeah. No, but, like, you look at the injury report. All of last week, it was hand slash shoulder. This week, it's hand. And we saw Garoppolo deal with the hand the week after the Titans game where his next start, he looked completely fine. So I don't know. I'm not making too much of that. I I think he's just such a divisive player by nature that it sort of causes very differing opinions on how you look at this Niners team. But uh, to me, this is it just has to be less than a field goal game. This is a Niners offense that matches up so well against the Rams defense, which again, you get the headline names with it, but it's just, there's a reason that the Rams defensively have struggled so much with this 49ers offense. And it's uh, when you get into the X's and O's, it's, it's a pretty intriguing case as to why that is. And it's not something you can really change on a week to week basis. You had a fascinating conversation with Eric Eager from PFF oh my God. on that dynamic. That was must-see. If anybody hasn't seen that, I believe it was Tuesday's episode of Covers Daily this week. Got to check it out. And I'll link to Covers Daily 
the YouTube show in the show notes. So that'll be easily accessible to anybody who wants to go find that. I think it's what probably seven minutes or so of the best analysis. I think anybody's going to get anywhere on this particular matchup. And in addition to getting you on the Niners side, it also seems like it gave you a nudge as far as the totals concerned. Well, yeah, I was sitting on the total looking at it saying that, look, the first meeting week six, seven, whatever it was close 51 couple weeks ago, close 47. And now we're, we were at 46 when I bet it. And it's also the lowest total in any Rams game the entire season. And so, like, for me, knowing the offensive advantages that both of the teams have against each other and how that is unlikely to change, but also I think some of it is, the Niners against the Packers looked so bad and there's such a distaste in general for Jimmy Garoppolo running this offense that it was so easy to sort of jump on what was seen on that field and just say the Niners offense is cooked and it's done. I I thought all of that just was being misinterpreted. And this is honestly a game that should be priced a little bit closer to 49 or 50. I just couldn't get justification for that being the lowest meeting of this entire series the third game this season but then also the lowest total of the year for the rams i just i didn't see it and i mean we saw the rams look terrific against the great bucks front seven 49ers front seven is very good as well especially that pass rush wasn't an issue for the rams to move the football against the buccaneers when play calling was efficient on early down second half we sort of put a circle around that one but I don't know. I just, it was way too low for me. So I bet the over as well. And then like you mentioned, um, Eric, I'm not even going, the analysis was so good. I'm not even going to repeat it. Cause it was just one of those things you have to go watch. You put that together and I'm like, this is an over for me. And we've seen this total, I think as high as 47 and a half at one point. And I know our mutual friend, Drew Dinsick, the whale capper, bet the under at that point. And you two are not necessarily going head to head when crossing through a key number like that is involved. But with your position on the over, if we do see this start to tick back up again, is there a price ceiling on the total where you would draw the line and say, all right, enough's enough. We're not going to bet it anymore at this number. 48 and a half, 49, closer to that first meeting, which I thought was priced close to correctly. So I'm happy to take that. Cool. All right. Sounds like there's still plenty of wiggle room there. No issues with the number right now. It might come down a little bit because people love the under just, I'm fine with the over. Got it. Yeah, I think that one factor that could play into both the over and the San Francisco side, one of my first thoughts with this game, not all road games being equal. A lot of talk about this being the 49ers' fourth road game in four weeks. I believe it might even be their seventh in nine weeks. And yeah, that sounds daunting. But in the last month, this is their second short trip down the California coast to Los Angeles. And we've seen, you know, the 49ers just bring it with crowd support in week 18 to the point that the Rams had a short lived update to their ticket policy, trying to geofence ticket sales to the Los Angeles. Uh, I guess not realizing, you know, myself living here, there's probably about as many Niners fans and Raiders fans for that measure as there are Rams fans. So I think that uh, it's still probably going to be a sea of red regardless to the point that we've got players on the Rams, their wives begging fans not to sell their tickets to fans of the other team. So thinking about the dynamic here, the Rams probably get next to nothing for home field. Uh, Of course, that could bode well for San Francisco from a side standpoint, but also with the total, 
probably neither team needing to go to a silent snap count. So if both offenses communicate reasonably well, we saw what that did last year with no fans in the stands. I feel like if the crowd's more or less neutral in this one, that might also be a subtle edge to your over. You said it well, like <laughs> when you're wondering about a home field advantage and you have to change ticket policies and you're begging people not to sell the tickets, like what does that say about the fans themselves that are going, it's the Rams don't have a home field advantage in the regular season. And normally when you get to a conference championship, this is the game that historically you can point to and say has the largest or most inflated home field advantage because of two things, obviously the situation and the circumstance. But the second being that usually you don't get to this point of the season unless you're a very good team. And very good teams tend to have very good home field advantages. It's not unusual there. And whether you're pointing to that being the geography or the talent on the field, or combination of both, right? That's what gets this number so high, usually in a conference championship for home field advantage. And you can say everything you want about the Niners and their travel and everything. But I mean, if they all drove to the game, it's what, a six-hour drive in traffic, but let alone flying, which they're obviously doing, and you get there in 45 minutes, an hour. So there's no burden on the travel. The Niners had the extra day of rest because they played on Saturday. The Rams played on Sunday. Both of the teams had to fly across the country. San Francisco was in Green Bay. L.A. was actually further away in Tampa Bay. So you have that advantage price that sort of added on to that. And then you have the Niners participating in what would be like a normal week at their facilities without worry. This is the team that when they have to go east or they have to go elsewhere, they change travel plans. They practice in different locations. But they're all at home this week. And so I don't think it's a road game whatsoever. It it very much feels like a neutral site. And if you want to go a step further, home field advantages are always reduced within divisional games because of the familiarity between the teams, but also the familiarity between the teams and the stadium that they're playing in. This is round three and the 49ers were just there a couple of weeks ago. And so like, Everything just kills the home field advantage here, which kind of piles on to more so of the reason that I like to side on the Niners as well above the field goal. Yeah, this is almost the same exact point spread we had in that week 18 game a few weeks ago. And I'm surprised we haven't seen more adjustment in the Niners' favor. They won that one outright without Trent Williams. Williams is a big question mark for this game, but if he gives them anything, that's an upgrade from what they got out of him in that week 18 matchup. And then just seeing what the Niners have done since then, plus the situation, four straight road game sounds really bad. Maybe not so much the case for this Niners team. So just digging in on the specifics, I don't see why this game's not three or lower. Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you on the Niners there. And I think it's great that you have really compelling cases for a total in each game as well as a side because this time of year, full game sides and totals about as sharp as it gets. So really a lot of the value can be found in the prop and derivative markets. And I'd like to touch on that for a little bit because one point you brought up on the simple handicap on Wednesday was the Bengals defense being weak guarding tight ends and running backs in the passing game. Wondering if you've given any look at props pertaining to perhaps Travis Kelsey, Jarek McKinnon receptions or receiving yardage overs. Kelsey got bet up right away. So missed that. Um, McKinnon, I don't believe, has been posted yet, unless it's been, a, I've been busy the last hour and a bit. So it might be up now. 
what concerns me there or makes it clouded is uh, Williams is healthy this week and Edwards Hilaire is healthy this week. So McKinnon's been kind of a revelation as a receiving option out of the backfield as that safety valve as teams have to sit back and play coverage like they have against Kansas, or against Kansas City. Last game against the Bills, Mahomes didn't attempt to pass over 20 yards downfield for the first time in his career. So everything's tight and condensed. McKinnon is invaluable in that situation. But if we see snaps being shared all of the sudden, rather than him being this main option on first and second down and being left in for third a lot of the times, then it's really hard to gauge how many touches he may ultimately get. Last week already, we kind of saw the beginnings of that. His rushing total was high 20s. I think he got eight or nine carries. But there was a lot of situational play where Edwards Alaire came in and was picking up a lot of yardage because it was a favorable spot to be running the football when he was being used. So that kind of makes it a little bit difficult. So as good as it would be to look at those options, it's kind of tough right now because you just don't know the usage. Fair enough. One prop I will send your way for this game and see what you think. Lay it on me. Shortest touchdown under one and a half yards has been my favorite prop as long as I've been doing this show. And particularly in this game with a high total, just from a pure math standpoint, the probability of more touchdowns bodes well for the probability of at least one yard touchdowns. Regular listeners don't hear me go too often, you know, on uh, the value of gosh, just finding this in the range of minus one thirty at some books when I feel like it should be about minus one sixty. I think from a matchup standpoint, we have, Andy Reid being more aggressive or at least more creative near the goal line this year than he was last year. I feel like this prop burned me on the Chiefs last season because they would consistently kick chip shot field goals or not convert with CEH in short yardage situations. But now with the shovel passes and whatnot and and the high stakes in this game, I feel like chip shot field goals, probably not a path to victory for either team, especially Cincinnati. I mean, say what you will about the end game last week, but Sean McDermott for most of that game, probably coached it about as well as he could have. And that included the opening drive, going for it on a fourth and short near midfield, going for it on fourth and goal from the one on the opening drive. I think there are a lot of things in this type of setting. If you're taking on the Chiefs, you know you've got to be aggressive. So if you're not going to punt as much and you're not going to settle for as many short field goals, that might give this even more value than it would in a regular situation. So any thoughts on shortest touchdown under one and a half yards in the AFC title game? Won me over. (laughs) Nice. All right. That, I'll, I'll tell it. you, in the first meeting, though, imagine sitting on that ticket with the endgame situation. Mm. They, I, what yeah. they, they scored from the one about three times, and none of them counted. <laughs> yeah, so, and, yeah, and at a certain point, it sounds like they that. weren't trying to score, and and I, they probably were, but there was speculation they were intentionally not scoring from the one. Yeah, it, it can be dicey at times. It's a roller coaster ride, but just thinking in terms of probability, you know minus 130 is, is well under the 60% or so threshold that I think would be fair value for this number. So it's an edge that I'm in play with. And I'd say if anybody can find us at minus 150 or better, that would be my best prop bet for this game. I think what you said about not settling for field goals is an important part that could increase that. The big question is how many possessions will ultimately be played out in the game. I think that can that to me with Kansas City games varies a ton right now. Like the Bills game in the first half they had, three each the Bengals the first meeting the Chiefs had three possessions in the second half I think but if this if the Chiefs score early 
I think it's a five to six possession per half type of game. So that's, I think, what open it up. So I'm with you. I, I you, you won me over. I like the look at the other side of the coin too, because as much as I love this prop, nothing is ever a given or a slam dunk. So it's important going into this to consider why it might not win as good as it may sure. sound and manage your bankrolls accordingly. And a prop I'm eyeing in the other game, I'd love to hear if you have any props or derivatives in mind. Okay, we got well. two. I like it. Lay it on me. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll say. And this one I am lifting from what I thought was maybe the best moment of today's episode of the Dream Preview with RJ and Fezzik and AJ Hoffman. Um, they kept it under two hours today, by the wow. way. So that was a major accomplishment. So I, I would like to thank them for that. It was a nice quick listen on 1.5 speed during my morning run. But Cam Akers. Uh, rushing yards under. They talked about 60 and a half. It's down to 59 and a half where I'm seeing it. And what I really like about this is a lot of props are lined more or less um, using a statistical projection that can't always account for a lot of random factors. Sometimes those miscellaneous factors are blown out of proportion and can just be big time narratives. But Akers coming back as quickly as he has from his Achilles injury. I I know Suma talked about it with you. Like kudos to him. Kudos to the Rams medical staff and training staff for getting him back. Don't want to diminish that, but it's hard to think he's at full strength after tearing his Achilles this past summer. So just simply, if he is still well less than a hundred percent, that could be a big issue when it comes to him racking up a bunch of yards on the ground. And then of course, there's a factor of him losing two fumbles that almost cost them dearly last week in Tampa Bay. So if he's a little bit more cautious, maybe he goes down a bit easier, just wants to make sure he's got ball security top of mind. If that slows him down a hair, that could be a factor in this bet. And then the matchup alone, if we do assume, hey, he's going to be at full strength, Sean McVay still trusts him after the fumbles, and he's going to run like his normal self without worrying too much about ball security, the Niners' defensive front can hold its own with just about anybody. So there's a few different paths I see to this getting home. Again, yes, it's possible he breaks one or two big runs, or the Rams build a big lead and he's just a bell cow and this is dead in the water come the fourth quarter. But more often than not, um, I do like the handicap for Akers under 59 and a half rushing yards. Wanted to run that one by you. Okay. I disagree with the first part. I think he's full health and there's no issue there. And like his speed is fully back somehow. It's really quite something. So I don't think the health is a factor whatsoever. I think the big part of it is that the Rams are just a really bad team when it comes to running the football, especially situational running. They're just, they're one of the worst teams that there is. Um, and I think that that to me is is the handicap within this, and I won't play it either way. But it, I, it's not a health thing. If he doesn't get over, it's just because the Rams are really bad at running the football. Fair enough. And maybe McVay's learned his lesson. I mean, we've seen when they've gotten out to some big leads, just going extremely run heavy. Terrible. They did get out to a big lead over the Niners in Week 18. Um, yep. If that happens again, maybe he'll be a bit more optimal. And who knows, maybe the Niners hold their own from the get-go and the Rams don't have a big lead to try to kill the clock with in the first place. I Hey, I'd be fine with that too. <laughs> if there's no big leads yeah. in the game, that works so well for the spread. So I'll take Indeed. it. Indeed. So we're, I think we're seeing eye-to-eye on the game, uh, the prop, uh, a lean for me at this point, but I think what you said makes a lot of sense. So I'll give it some more thought before deciding whether or not to make that wager on Acres. One more thing I wanted to talk with you about as it pertains to odds for NFL games. Obviously we touched on the two this weekend, but early Super Bowl lines are available. The NFC was favored last week, but with the Packers and Bucks wiped out, that's flipped to the AFC being a two and a half point favorite. And if we look at the four potential matchups, 
I'm seeing if the chalk holds in its Chiefs Rams, uh, Chiefs in the ballpark of two and a half for reduced VIG. I've also seen an expensive one and a half. So we can almost just call that a flat minus two for Kansas City against the Rams. Chiefs Niners, it looks like Chiefs might be a cheap minus three. If it's Rams Bengals, Rams laying three and a half. If it's Niners Bengals, the Niners a juicy minus two and a half. Any thoughts on any of those lookheads? Do you have anything in the sights as you think about where you might be ready to pull the trigger once the Super Bowl matchup is known and the market fully opens? If it's the Niners and Bengals and it opens less than a field goal, the biggest bet I will have ever made on a Super Bowl will 100% be on the Niners. That is a silly price. They'll just, they'll kill the offensive line. That's, it's a blowout. Um, so that price is bad. Uh, the other ones, like I would lean the Rams chiefs is interesting because the Rams defensively are really quite made out to defend what Kansas city does fairly well. And so that becomes a really interesting matchup. Probably has to be a field goal at three. I, I'd honestly probably bet on LA in that spot. Mm-hmm. Um, the other two, what were the prices in those? There was KC was a bigger favorite against. Yeah, I'm seeing KC as a cheap minus three against the Niners and the Rams a flat three and a half against the Bengals. Yeah, Rams Bengals is the same thing. Like Cincinnati is not built to play against. That'll be ugly too. So not as much as the Niners, but that on the other side is is interesting. But um, that's yeah. I would probably bet the Rams in any circumstance. That's my gut feeling right now. I'm not looking too in-depth at it. I can say with confidence, if the Niners open last in a field goal against the Bengals, that's, that won't last. Um, and then the other, the other one, I'm kind of indifferent. And that's probably one where you might have to be really quick once this line opens. So I think the value in this exercise, not just going through some of the picks you outlined, but just having these numbers in mind. I mean, it was really helpful for me having done this at this time last week knowing, okay, I I probably would have been content to bet the Niners at plus three, honestly. And then it's 27-3 Rams in Tampa late in the third quarter. Some books open four and a half. I'm like, okay, I'm taking it. I feel like that's a point and a half adjustment off the king of key numbers because the Rams looked really good for two and a half quarters. And then when this happens, something else to consider. If the line opens, if the NFC title game is a blowout either way, the line might open again late third quarter or sometime before the game is over. It can really only go one way that point. I, I would suggest looking at the dog and getting in play on the underdog early, uh, assuming the underdog would be, ah, let me pause for a sec. If the underdog is the Bengals, that's a look. The overall point I'm trying to make here is that if a team's blowing somebody out like the Rams, they can suffer a big injury or they could stumble. We saw the Rams stumble in a big way. Once the AFC team has punched its ticket to the Super Bowl, we're watching the NFC title game that AFC team is not going to suffer an injury after the game, presumably. And we know who gotcha. they are. So things could only really go backward for the team that's blowing out somebody. If there is a blowout in the NFC title game, I feel like I kind of botched my explanation there, but I hope when I kind of, you don't want to bet thoughts, after the AFC game is done, you don't want to bet a Super Bowl look ahead on an NFC team because the game has to finish. Right. And if, if the NFC title game is really close and it's, you know, the line opens right after that one's over, then then fine, that's something we can ignore. But sometimes right. if there's a team that looks amazing, like the Rams last week, 27-3, to 3, 
I'm like, okay, well, they might suffer an injury. They might blow it. I mean, if 27-3 becomes 37-3, we're not really that much more impressed. A blowout's a blowout. But when that game got close, those four and a halfs went to three and a half in about 20 minutes. So right. You got something to, yep. something to keep in mind there. If the line You saved it at the, the end. NFC you saved over. it at the end. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I hope anybody listening for the past three minutes just went to 2x speed and then slowed it right back down just in time for that. Um, but yeah, let me... I want to move on to a couple of uh, talking points about all the awesome content you're creating and one really good, I think, evergreen betting thought that I want to highlight. But as far as let's call it a portfolio for this weekend, looking forward, we've got Chiefs game, the AFC title game over 54 and a half, uh, NFC title game, Niners plus three and a half over 46. I will add a prop for the AFC title game, shortest touchdown under one and a half yards, good up to minus 150. And I'm still seeing some minus 130 out there. So I think there's a bit of wiggle room. And then just numbers to be ready to look for come Super Bowl market being open. Niners, if they're laying less than three to the Bengals, that's a massive bet for you. The Bengals do a couple of things as bad as any team in the league. Pass block, defend running backs, defend tight ends and passes over the middle. The Niners do some things better than any other team in the league. It's pass rush, throw to running backs and utilize the run game and complete passes to tight ends and wide receivers over the middle. Like you could not pick a worse opponent for Cincinnati to face than the 49ers in a game like that. And it's Zach Taylor against Kyle Shanahan in a, it's so, I would love, it's going to take a lot to make that happen, but Boy, if it does, that's an easy bet. If you, I don't even know if Hitman has access to DraftKings anymore, but if you've got some friends in Jersey. Right for a buck. <laughs> just, yeah, exactly. On uh, the off chance we do see Niners Bengals, uh, that is a bettable line right now. Again, who knows what the limits are, but uh, that is being floated out there. And if we were to see a plus three for the Rams against the Chiefs, you'd consider that bettable for the Rams. I agree with you there. I don't know that we'd see a three, but if so, I'd be ready to pounce. And then if it's Rams Bengals, probably a smaller bet. But if the minus three and a half holds, you think the Rams could establish a good bit of margin against Cincinnati as well. It's a kind of similar handicap. So, yeah. Sounds good. All right. Well, let's move on from, you know, breaking down games and talking picks to, I think, an evergreen concept that, frankly, might be the most valuable part of this conversation for anybody listening who's in this for the long haul. Uh-oh. A big talking point in betting circles, CLV, closing line value. And you kind of flipped that on its head recently, and I loved it, bringing up the term closing line entitlement. So CLE, if you will. I'd love it if you could explain that concept and what sparked you to begin speaking to it. I can't, what, I can't remember what did spark it. I think it was just a conversation that popped up on the timeline and I got into it and it just spiraled out of control like it usually does. The point I was trying to make was that, in my opinion, is undisputable, is if you beat the – talking NFL here. If you beat the closing line over the long term, you will end up being profitable. And if you don't, you're going to have a very difficult time to be profitable. Like, beat the closing line and you will win. And a lot of people will dispute that. And they'll say, just pick winners. Or doesn't matter if you get – so much CLV and you lose, you can't pay the bills with CLV. And it's very much a like results orientated thought process that is reactionary to what is happening. 
And I think part of the reason that people are being turned off by something that is very simple to understand and in many ways indisputable is because they will learn about the concept of beating the closing line and they will do it because they start focusing on it. And they'll bet, say, five games on the weekend, and they'll beat the closing line in all five. And then they'll go two and three. They'll say, well, this doesn't work. I, I beat the closing lines. It doesn't matter. But there's a feeling when you do it and you're ahead of it that, like, the ticket you're holding is more valuable. Because it is. But it doesn't guarantee that you are going to win that bet that you beat the closing line on. And you may beat the closing line like some betting groups, nine out of every 10 bets. But ultimately, you are probably, if you're among the best in the world, going to win just below 60% of your bets against the spread. You're going to be in the high 50s. And that's just the reality of how it works. But that's that's the truth about it. And then the other side is, if you're not beating the closing line and you're giving up points in the NFL to the close versus when you bet, you're going to be a heck of a lot worse than that. You're not going to get that level of success if you're not doing it. And so everybody likes to point it out and how you just have to win and you can't pay the bills with closing line value and everything. Show me someone that's beating the NFL or any other sport long-term that isn't beating the closing line consistently. You don't find it. And so that's, I think, just kind of where that went. And that was the way that I'm kind of looking at it anyway. I love it. I think like most things, whenever there's a an overly simplistic take on it, there's probably more nuance. The truth lies somewhere in the middle. And I like this approach of valuing CLV very highly, but at the same time, not assuming it guarantees anything. And I feel like you brought this up at the right time in my betting journey because week 18, I had the hitman on this show. He talked about betting the bucks for the first half. As soon as I was done talking to him, grabbed minus four, closed minus six and a half. Bucks won the game by a million against the Panthers. It didn't matter. They did not cover that first half number, despite that CLV on the minus four relative to the six and a half. And then during the playoffs, last week took an early lead on Tennessee minus three, closes minus four. That's a good bet. Doesn't matter. It lost. And then this week, I hope the closing line value does matter or the Niners won outright. But I was able to grab a cheap four and a half when the Rams were up 27-3. Now it's an expensive three and a half. So it's like, yes, sitting in a good position, that was a good bet regardless of how the NFC title game plays out. But if the Rams win by two touchdowns, that doesn't somehow make me a victim just because I got closing line value. No, you made a good bet and you made the right decision and that's what you can control. And that's the end of it. And so unless like you have to realize you're probably going to be betting for a long time. You don't want to discard the most important thing because it doesn't work on a weekend. So just, it's it's a it's a process versus result discussion that people struggle with. Yeah, I think you do a good job of easing that struggle for people between the work you're doing on covers daily and the simple handicap. And as far as the podcast goes, the simple handicap sounds like your last episode's coming up on Sunday after the conference title games. Bittersweet for me. I love the work that you do there every season, but I know that there's not a lot to talk about. You don't need to do 14 straight days of Super Bowl breakdowns <laughs> when the line's hardly moving, uh, yeah. if it's moving at all. So to that end, any off-season content plans looking beyond the simple handicap on the podcasting front, or is it perhaps just moving away from some golf betting you've done in years past and putting podcasts to the side and getting out on the golf course more often? Probably the latter. Um, 
there's been a lot the last month and a half that kind of we've been doing some things on the site side with the team and trying different concepts and stuff. And it'll be more so once we're done, just an effort to get other people in positions to cover all the other sports that we have sort of holes for in the moment. So it's going to be more from like the higher level side rather than being involved with it, which is going to be a welcomed reprieve from really every weekday at a minimum since late July, mid July. Um, there's been something that I've been doing on air every weekday. So like there's been a lot going on and it's been fantastic. And obviously when you're winning, it makes it easier, but uh, there's, I've probably done last year. I did as many like appearances and different shows as I'll ever consider doing ever again. Like it was, I was doing like six different shows a week. This year has been one show per weekday. And then in the playoffs, we've had like the daily one, which is just me talking with people. That's not overly difficult to do, but um, there, it's just been a lot of really consistent work. So I'm I'm looking forward for it to come to an end in about a week's time. But at the same time, it means football's ending, which is never great. You talked about covers daily a bit there, and I want to be sure to dig in on that a bit. That's a show people can catch on YouTube. And you have not been solo on this for a good chunk of the segments. You've been interviewing, I would say, sports betting royalty on both sides of the counter. So what's it been like for you to get on the other side of things and conduct some interviews yourself? Well, I am a terrible host. And so it's been <laughs> it's been pretty rough, but like the people make it easy. I have no idea, like Nick Costos comes to mind. Him and Lockie, they talk about it for four hours a day. I'm at 45 minutes and I'm out. Of, like, I don't know how they do it. And guys on VSIN, Mitch and Polly are three, four hours. Like, it is not easy. And so it's been a lot of fun. And we've got to speak with some great folks and they've been very generous with their time. But it's, <laughs> I'm, hosting is tough. I'll give it, I'll give you, uh, you and all the other hosts that for sure. So uh, we'll see what happens next year. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you for what you're doing there because I, I think you're selling yourself short a bit when it comes to the quality of your hosting ability and the guests you're bringing on and the conversations you're having. Absolutely top-notch. My one request, and this might be something that would have to be a next-year consideration, as far as I'm aware, it can only be found on YouTube. Has there been any thought to putting that in podcast form? Because sometimes this time of year, there's so much good content. I want to catch it all. But if I can turn a podcast on even 1.2x or 1.5x and still digest the information, that's just more doable for me and maybe a lot of other people versus going to YouTube. Any thought to a Covers Daily podcast edition? There really wasn't because there's a really strong concerted effort to grow the YouTube channel because there's so much more value in YouTube relative to podcasting. And so that's kind of the goal of the team for the next couple of years so there's kind of a big effort being made into doing that so it might be something that we look at doing but right now it's a pretty big focus on youtube for the foreseeable future understood i want to touch on one more piece of content that sure. you're not involved in all the time but recently you appeared on circles off which speaking of youtube plus podcasting they're kind of you know straddling both lines right now and you did an interview with johnny from Betstamp and last week's guest on props and hops rob pizzola Right off the top, I just want to say I have a couple questions that I'd like to build on that conversation and try to advance it versus repeating anything. Sure. Highly encourage anybody enjoying your insight here 
to go listen to that recent episode of Circles Off as well. One of the topics you guys dug into was the sports betting content landscape. And they asked you about the different platforms you've experimented with, from a Slack channel to a text message service. You mentioned a lot of it just coming down to curiosity and the value of maybe taking a bit of a risk to try something new, but the upside of being first if something is a big hit. And that really resonated with me. I'm wondering if there's anything else as far as content and platforms go that's on your radar to maybe go out on a limb and try in the near future. Well, there is, there is, but I can't say because I want to be first. Um, <laughs> no, honestly, it's been the last. So I was I was on the product side with covers till the mid to end of November. So I've kind of only been on the content and on the strategy side for the site since like early December, and everybody at the company was away for two weeks over Christmas and New Year's, and so there were just a few of us around doing NFL stuff. So it's really only been like five full weeks but all of those five weeks have been dedicated with like a sole focus on youtube and so obviously youtube's been around for i don't know 13 14 years now whatever it is it's not new it's not different but there's a lot a lot a lot of opportunity from a sports betting perspective not just on a recurring basis but also on a search driven basis as like it's inevitable that YouTube is going to become the search engine, especially for learning topics that people sort of default to. And so like, it was always like that from a consumer perspective, people want to like buy a TV or buy a car or whatever. Large majority are now going to YouTube to search for review of whatever they want to buy more so than looking for like the written review on a site through Google. So that behavior is shifting. And we're starting to see the area of which people search on YouTube for topics expand pretty rapidly. And so when it comes to the betting side, there's just not a lot out there. And inevitably, something is going to lead to more and more people shifting over. And so it's not necessarily a case of being first on YouTube, but it's a case of covering a lot of those, but at the same time, offering something within the platform that's different enough to matter on a daily basis that people can't find from the other handful of people that are active on YouTube from a betting side. And so it's, it's like a, it's kind of like a discovery process, but it's on a platform that's really old. So it's a bit different, but that's really where the, the focus is for us this year. Love it. Not necessarily a brand new platform, but something that's been around for a while that hasn't, perhaps been used properly and there's still Changing, a lot of meat yeah. left on that phone. And a second piece of that, knowing what platform to use, having the right content strategy is one thing. And then having the talent to lead the charge is another piece of that equation. Again, I think you might've sold yourself quite a bit short as far as your hosting duties are concerned, but you mentioned to Rob and Johnny on circles off that finding talent in this space, it's just really hard to come by. And this is partially a selfish question for somebody in my position but I know a lot of other people also in a similar boat would be curious for your advice on anybody who's looking to fulfill the void for talent across this space. What do you think is really needed that people can apply to their own processes? In terms of the pro I, the process part's pretty like personal and individual. I think at times now it, it's, um, Really, like with the networks becoming so involved, it's really changed everything in the last like three to five months. It's com 
it's gone from a lot of this, which is, in my opinion, still much more valuable than anything you're seeing on big media to people that have done shows like this forever. Now you're seeing them on ESPN. You're seeing them on NBC. You're seeing them on golf channel. Like it's, it's really shifted within that dynamic. And it's, it's gone from where knowledge about betting always got you on shows like this. Like all the guests that you have are terrific at betting, but now there's like another side of it with all these networks where it's like, the knowledge only gets you so far. You have to actually be good and entertaining and being on camera. And so that's kind of a new element to it with all of these people that are getting deals and contracts and everything. Like it's now becoming a balance of both. And I'm I'm very bad at the latter of the on-camera stuff and everything that is like a constant improvement to try to do it. And so I would say to anyone that's trying to do that, like it's about saying the complex things in a way that's presentable on camera within like a very concise period is becoming very, very valuable. And so it's now, it's now gone from just being like the best possible better that there is to like the best possible better that can also be worthwhile to put on a network and be entertaining on camera. So I, I'll, I, if I had any advice on how to improve, I can, I can give advice on the betting side, but on the camera stuff, it's like, it's a battle for me every day too, but that's kind of what's going on. I'll drop his name one more time here, but it reminds me of David Malinsky as you lay this out and you touched on it on Twitter last week. It's just mind blowing to think how big he would be at a time like this. If we still had him around because he could go toe to toe with the best betters in the world. And he was endearing as could be and as relatable as could be for somebody who knew nothing about betting. So kind of finding that synergy, it sounds like that's really the sweet spot moving forward. The retention of things that you took away from a segment with him is like exponentially higher than anyone else. And I don't, it's just natural talent that he had that like, if you, even that old video that was posted, I can't remember who posted it. Like you, you just, he spoke for 25 minutes of the 40 minutes. Everything that he said for the most part went away with you. And you, it wasn't overly complex or anything, or there's old videos of him breaking down like a USC UCLA football game. And like the, the people that I like listening to the most, and I think are the best at what they do are the ones that will say something. And it makes you upset because it was something so simple that you never even thought about because you were overcomplicating it. And he does that in his videos as well as anyone ever has and anyone ever will. And so it's great. I don't know where that was found because like I've gone looking for stuff that he did. And like I had a trouble finding more than just a couple of breakdowns that were associated with different sites. But that was like the like a 45 minute show. So it was something that needs to be preserved in a folder or a USB stick somewhere that you can go back to anytime. Well said, and I'll give credit. I just looked as you were explaining that, wanting to give credit where it's due as far as that video resurfacing. Ian Cameron brought it to my attention. Yeah. I believe you had shared his tweet as well. Yeah. Um, so, Ian, if you're listening to this, thank you so much. Ten years later, it is still priceless. How good, on a similar note, how good does Teddy look today compared to ten years ago? Oh, <laughs> what is he doing? <laughs> Maybe a little bit more like goodness. Adam if somebody caught the end of that episode with the Garden of Eden back and forth. They really weaved in everything. And yeah, Teddy seems to be doing quite well these days.
Like I'm putting in similar hours and I'm going the other way at the waist, the face, the body, everything. And Teddy's just looking younger and younger. Just doesn't age. It's doing something. I don't know. Maybe it's something about that Vegas climate. If uh, you can get somewhere a little warmer year round, get outdoors, but it sounds like you've got plenty of golf in your near term future. So that'll so. certainly help. And another thing that uh, it helps when enjoyed in moderation, got to weave in the other pillar of this podcast. I, I will say first off, Shame on me for now having you on twice and not doing it at a time where I could share a beer with you during the show. This time, I short-sightedly booked you right before multiple meetings for my day job, so I'm looking forward to cracking a beer as soon as I can. Um, maybe I'll, I'll toast you virtually as I'm listening back to part of this conversation. Yeah. But I do want to bring in the other pillar of this podcast to see what your drink of choice would be for this conference championship weekend in the NFL. Well, I, so I don't have an answer because I have not drank anything since New Year's. And it wasn't because of like a choice where it's like dry January. Here we go. It was just we started live streaming. I'll pull up the calendar. We It was that Saturday that we started live streaming. And we've had something every day since. So I've had at least the stream plus the podcast every single day sense and there's always been the stream that was early or there was halftime games late that we're doing halftime live for and then the podcast either really late at night or first thing in the morning and there's no way that i can just be drinking and doing that so it's kind of been like a forced non-drinking but i will say that come super bowl weekend for two weeks after i am completely disappearing from earth and it's like the phone going off computer's going away and it's gone and so we, we the wife and i still aren't entirely sure where we're ending up but if it's if we end up in the dominican then it is numerous presidentes which we talked about last time if you buy that at a store because they have it in the states it's not the same thing as what you drink there and that to me is as good of a beer in the environment that it is naturally supposed to be enjoyed in as there will be anywhere now, if we end up doing, it was just, there's rumors about Extapa in Mexico because we don't like we're not big like tourist place people and the resorts and all inclusives. It just we don't have time for that. So we're, we're going like the literally the quietest place in Mexico. And if that's the case, and it will annoy people, but you got to go Tecate. And Love again, it. it's one of those beers you have it in the states, and you're like, I don't want to drink this, but. It's the same thing with Modelo to an extent, but down there, especially if you're in that part of the country, which unfortunately I've never been to, but you get kind of the the Michelada thing going on with like the adobo peppers and everything that are like on the like the really good natural rim stuff that isn't just like a fake tahine. And so there's there's some good things coming, but there's not much going on this weekend, nor has there been this month. I'm so glad you touched on Presidente and Tecate because I'm going to go on the other end of the spectrum. So at least one of us came with something it's widely available. It's supposed to be a craft beer answer. I gave the two most mass-produced dancers ever. Well, something else we talked about last time, it's so much more than what's in your can or bottle or glass. It's all about the environment, who you're with, and in the right setting. I would put Tecate and Presidente up there with anything. So I fully endorse that answer. Can I redeem the answer yes. for like the beer enthusiast that now just think I'm a giant hack listening to this in the town nearby where I am. And I'm just, I'm West of Calgary and Alberta. And there's a small town that's 
about a couple miles away. They opened something called the Beard Den. And so I didn't know what it was. I went in and they import all of the Canadian craft beer from Western Canada into like one, like the towns, like the, where it is, is like 6,000 people. And they, they import everything. And there's a beer that I don't know where you'll ultimately find it in the U S but it is twin sales brewery. That's based out of just East of Vancouver in a little town called Port Moody. And they have a beer in a white can. That's like a citrus or sit. I, I don't remember the details of it. And again, I'm going to consider it a hack here, but it's called that juice. And I tell you like in terms of enjoyment of a beer i had it when i lived in vancouver all the time because it was like widely available but for whatever reason this place where we are in this small town in western alberta happens to have cans of that but they only order 12 at a time and so it's a consistent race to get those specific cans because people know and it sells out more than any other beer that they carry within the store and so it's just this fantastic wheat pale ale style beer that's just so perfectly balanced and so that there's there's one of those in the future too but it's it's beautiful so that's a redeeming answer i couldn't resist looking it up as you were going through that description uh just on untapped that juice by Twin Sales Brewing, uh, wheat beer. Yeah, American pale wheat is the style they give it. 5.2% ABV. You're right, that can art is pretty eye-catching. It's just a white can with a nice, like, orange circle going around It feels nice, it. yeah. It, it, yeah, and that makes sense based on them describing it as an unfiltered pale ale with large amounts of flaked and malted wheat, then heavily hopped. Oh, yeah, 100% citra hops. That is my favorite hop. This and phenomenal. because of that... They mentioned tasting notes of grapefruit, pineapple, and mango. So with that answer, we are kind of on the same page here because the beer that I've got on hold in the beer fridge is by a brewery called Treehouse. And first off, I've got to thank my friend who goes by the name Prospector Sam. We did a beer trade recently. I've also had him on this show. Probably the sharpest beer mind I've come across in recent years that I haven't known for a long time. And I sent him some good stuff from the West Coast. And he sent me a box from Treehouse Brewing in Massachusetts. And that is a bucket list brewery. And I would say perhaps at the top of their list of bucket list beers would be one that is double dry hopped, very hazy. It's essentially a double dry hopped, double IPA. And this will be my first time having it. So I can't speak to it from experience. But from what I've heard, what I'm anticipating, you talked about a beer with a lot of citra a moment ago. This one, super citrusy, tropical, smooth as can be. I just cannot wait to dig into it. And I feel like if nothing else, if the games this week are not as memorable as last week, at least the beer promises to be. And in your case, even if it goes out a bit beyond this week, even if it's Presidente or Tecate, you've still got some memorable beers in your near-term future as well. Well, I, f- I kind of feel bad because like, I know the show and the in-depth beer answers. But the point I'm trying to make here as critical of some maybe of the beer choice i am like if if i had to like strongly invest in a theory that i have that could somehow be commoditized it would be that 
any beer that you drink anywhere in the world is as enjoyable as it is assumed to be enjoyed where it is produced. And there's, you, you just, you can't get that with beers unless you're traveling. And there's like, if you could, I would be incredible, but it's just, it's not realistic. And so uh, to me, a travel to a travel trip to somewhere to enjoy like the most simplistic beer that they have is as enjoyable as anything that's like from a craft brewery. But the difference is that obviously you can't get that. So the answer is skewed and it's pretty low brow for the show, but at, at the same rate, there's something to that that is very real. I think it absolutely works. And that reminds me of a trip I had planned to the Guinness factory in Ireland. It's got supposed wiped to be out, incredible. <laughs> got wiped out two weeks before we were supposed to go there. The pandemic was, you know, declared by the WHO and everything got ah. restricted. So it got so close to checking it out. Still hope to in the near term future, but I'm right there with you. I mean, yeah, I, I will enjoy a good hazy IPA or a barrel aged sour or stout by a local microbrewery. But at the same time, if you're enjoying something to your point in the place where it is made as fresh as can be and in the environment that it's meant to be enjoyed, there's pretty much no wrong answer. So I would not push back at all on anything you just said there. And there has to there. I swear there's science. I don't know. I'm not smart enough to understand what it is, but there's something because another great example is there's a beer in Colombia when I was living there called Aguila, which is it gets solid. It's just like the local mass-produced beer it's one of three within the country but in there's a town north of medellin where i lived called guatape and there's i i kid you not it's like picture a giant just as big of a rock as you can imagine that's just in the middle of this lake and they built like a wooden staircase that goes to the top of it and it takes uh, probably half an hour if you're walking at a good pace to go up these rickety stairs and you go to this top of this giant rock that's in the middle of nowhere. And at the top, there's like a balcony and there's a lady that carries up mangoes, salt, some pepper and like a cooler, a beer on her back that just goes up these stairs. And at the top of it, she has plastic cups. So you get to the top of this giant rock. That's like hard to even imagine. I'm not like you, not a mountain, but just like a giant boulder. It's just huge. You get to the top and you're given like this warm mass produced lager in a plastic cup with salt and the pepper mix on the rim and like a slice of mango inside of the beer. And if you drank that in any setting anywhere in the world, it would probably be borderline like I want to puke. You you drink it on that rock after walking up those stairs. It is phenomenal. Like top 10 all-time drinks that you're ever going to have and there's no explanation behind it it's just whatever you do to get there that makes it incredible and i'll have one more story as i go on this point when i was growing up i got i got pushed into pitching square bales at a farm i was doing it for like 20 bucks and so we were like 16 or 17 a friend and i and so your hands are ripped because of the twine and you're all itchy because you're in like cooking hot sun in the middle of a field and there's hay and straw and you're all scratched up and you just you're a complete mess we got to the end of it when the guy who owned the farm pulled around in the truck and he pulled out six bush light from a cooler 
and you're sitting in the field after just wrecking your body for 12 hours and the sun's going down and you're drinking a bush light and it is like i'll remember that beer for the rest of my life i've had a hundred amazing craft beers in 10 different cities that are incredible but like i'll remember that bush light forever just like i'll remember the aguila and the rock and the presidente and I'm sure if I end up going to Mexico, a random Tecate at a bar. There's just something to it. Once you're back from disappearing from the face of the earth for a couple of weeks, I've got to bring you back on at some point this offseason. I mean, you're so good at describing, again, another thing David Molinsky was so big on, time and place. It just doesn't get much better when you can bring everything together in the right environment. Yeah, Adam, I don't know how we're going to top that right now. So I want to make sure before we wrap this up to plug your work so people know where they can find you. Twitter, at Adam Chernoff, the Simple Handicap Podcast. I think we've got two episodes to go, Friday and Sunday, and then it's a wrap until next season. But also the YouTube show covers daily. Is there anything I'm missing or anything you'd like to add? I'm sure there is, but just follow me on Twitter and go to covers.com and you'll catch it all. Awesome. Well, Adam, once again, thank you for your time and insight. Best of luck this conference championship weekend. Thanks for having me on the chat. Enjoy the games as well. Goodbye. Thanks again to Adam, and thank you for listening. If you found any value in our conversation, the number one way you can support Props and Hops is to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. A close second would be to check out the BetUS NFL show I'm hosting on YouTube with professional bettors Las Vegas Chris and Scott Cohen. We've been breaking down every game, every week, all season long, and our conference championship show is already available. You can check it out via the link in the show notes. And heads up, next week we'll be taking an early look at the Super Bowl matchups as well as our prop strategy. That show is going to go live on YouTube Wednesday at 2.30 p.m. Eastern, 11:30 a.m. Pacific. Chris, Scott, and I will also be doing a Twitter space tomorrow. If you're listening to this episode on the day of its release, a bets and beers conference championship happy hour, Friday, January 28th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. After a successful first foray into Twitter spaces last week, we've got another round on tap. So check that out via the link in the show notes as well. And one more announcement. I'm excited to let you know I'll be part of a special live stream during the conference championship games this Sunday, joining Dave Damashek and Evan Rosenblum. We'll also have some pro athletes and celebrity guests joining virtually. The concept is a companion stream to conference championship game viewing. Think of it as something inspired by the Manning cast, but with more of a betting focus. If you'd be interested in checking that out, go ahead and follow me on Twitter, at MLandis18, and I'm planning to share more details on that live stream as they become available. One housekeeping item as we hit the home stretch: if you live in an area where wagering is legal and want to kill two birds with one stone, go ahead and sign up for a sportsbook via any of the links at the bottom of the Props and Hops landing page on Dimers.com. That way you can get down on some edges and support this show along the way, and once again you can find a link to that page in these show notes. And saving perhaps the best for last, a special bonus edition of the Malinsky Minute for those of you who've listened all the way through. As mentioned at the top of this show, we've got a new theme song coming in its entirety. Thanks again to John Corey and Scott Milch from the Hambones for making that happen. And the Hambones not only played my wedding with Mrs. Props and Hops, but they were also the house band of the House of Yards podcast I did with David Malinsky 
back in 2017 throughout that NFL season. And like a lot of us, Dave loved their sound. I'd give anything for him to hear this song, so I'll be queuing it up shortly. And once again, in the show notes, I'd encourage you to check out the links to the Hambones Facebook page where you can like them there, and also check out their website if you like rock, country, blues, or perhaps all of the above. You can download their original music on Apple Music to enjoy anywhere, or if you happen to be in the New York area, go ahead and see them live. They've got six shows lined up over the next few weekends, and I must say, in addition to their original music, their covers are about as good as it gets, especially when paired, of course, with a cold beer. Alright, that'll do it this week. Best of luck with your conference championship action. I'll talk to you next week with early looks at the Super Bowl matchup and the props market, plus a glimpse into life after football with another special guest who bets many sports at a high level. Until then, let's bet well, let's drink well, let's be well, and let's rock out well, courtesy of the Hambones. <laughs>